So we continue our worship by reading uh, from the scriptures. Uh, Peter Hutton has been a blessing to us by uh, teaching from and preaching from the book of Proverbs. And uh, today we come in the end of the book of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs chapter 31 from verse 10 onwards. A wife of noble character who can find... She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets out her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her training is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes covering for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies the merchants with sashes. She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction in her own tongue. She watches over the affairs affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward that she earned. Let her works bring her praise at the city gate. May God's name be blessed through the public reading of his words. Amen. To be among you these last three weeks. Um, privileged to be among this community of faithful people um, and to feel that God is using his astonishing word to do things among you. It's been such a blessing, so I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. And to God above that. Hmm. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. A woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. Hmm. You know, I may talk a good game, as far as being fearless goes. You'll recall my giving it to you hot and strong in the first sermon from uh, Tate and Brady, old hymn, fear him ye saints and you will then have nothing else to fear. But as my family knows, and as one of them here this morning, I do get easily, as they say in South Yorkshire, frit. And it's been a pretty frittening 
week, hasn't it, on the news? Huh? The thing that's really given me, of course, sleepless nights is the thought that the Spanish won't let us leave the EU until we give back Gibraltar. And I mean, hey, you know, we nicked Gibraltar fair and square. <laughs> I think we should do a trade. I mean, can't we settle this? They could have the Isle of Wight. In fact, you know, come on, we could do some swaps here, couldn't we? I mean, the Albanians have got this lovely Mediterranean coastline. We could have a bit of that, and they could have ghoul. Yeah? But all joking aside, I digress slightly, as is my manner, um, it has been pretty frightening. And those apocalyptic fires in California... But they're far away, and you know, I don't think we're going to get them in sea mills. But there was something that, coming out of that coverage of those fires, that really actually did tug at one of my fears. And that was, do you remember Michael Johnston, the great sprinter? He lost his wonderful home in San Rafael in those fires. But he came on the TV to talk about something else that had happened to him. In September this year, he was in his gym working out and at the end of it, he had a stroke. Did you see this interview, some of you? Yeah? Yeah, it was good. yeah wasn't it moving? And he, he was left paralysed down the left side of his body. This is the man who could run 200 metres in 20 seconds. And when he got out of his bed for the first time with the physio... It took him 15 minutes to walk 200 metres. See, that could happen to me, and for all I know, it could happen to, it has happened to somebody here. Or you'll know people, you know, the sudden bolt out of the blue. You know, everything's lovely in life, and then wham. Mark you, not a word of self pity from Mr. Johnson. But still, come back to him a bit later, actually. And you might think, what's the point in striving in life? You know, what was the point of him being the great sprinter, for a while the fastest man in the world until the Baptist Usain Bolt took his titles from him? What's the point? I mean, all that... You got wealth, you might say. Lovely house. It all went up in smoke. McLarens and the Mercedes and the Porsches and the garage. All gone. Woof. What's the point? What's the point of training and keeping fit? And that's what he did, by the way, after he stopped being a sprinter. He still ate well and exercised and did everything in moderation. A bit like me. I mean, I... I passed up on the cheesecake on Friday lunch because I knew there was going to be fish and chips in the evening. See that? <laughs> what are you laughing at, Mackie? What's the point in becoming the very best computer programmer or engineer or, or, or preacher or even becoming 
very wise if it can be taken from us like that. As, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a question raised in Scripture, actually. Book of Ecclesiastes 2.15. I said, what happens to the fool? Death will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? Hmm. What's the point? Why don't we just do enough to get by? So, instead of thinking too much in preparing this sermon, I typed in, best is enemy of the good in Wikipedia. And I came up with these gems. Robert Watson Watt, crazy name, crazy fella, who developed early warning radar in Britain in the Second World War, propounded a cult of the imperfect, which he stated as, give them the third best to go on with. The second best comes too late. The best never comes. So third best is good enough. And another little gem from Wikipedia on the same topic, George Stiegler, the economist, I'm sure you read a lot of his works, if you never miss a plane, you're spending too much time at the airport. (laughs) Now, George, George... When I shared your bon mot with the regulatory authorities in my household, she was not impressed. She firmly restated our policy of always arriving at the airport three hours or sometimes four before takeoff. (laughs) Now, in fact, as a response to this impudence, She says that the policy is to be extended to other forms of transport. I'm glad that there's a nice church-run cafe near the bus stop in Sea Mills. Robert Watson Watt. The book of Proverbs would not be happy with your doctrine that the third best is enough. All right, might work in an emergency. In wartime. But if we want to live in the fear of the Lord, we have to aim for the very best. And that is why the book ends with a portrait of a human being who is not settling for third or second best. The words we just heard. Now, it's very interesting, actually, the form of those last 22 verses, it tells us that. 
What's the significance of the, this last section, this poem, at the end of Proverbs being in 22 verses? Anybody know? David. Just so. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you read the book of Proverbs, if you read the end of Proverbs in the original, you'll find that every line starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the correct order. It's as if we were to write a poem in 26 letters and start the first line with A, the second B, second C, second D. Yeah? It's, it's a poetic form called an acrostic. Sounds like something you might do in needlework, but it isn't. It's, it's a poetic form, an acrostic. And because it, in the mind of the writers of Scripture, the alphabet is something whole and perfect. Whenever we get this form in Scripture, and we get it a lot, actually, it signifies something whole and perfect and complete. The, the, the parade example is Psalm 119, which is the longest psalm in the Bible, as you know. And it's 22 stanzas, each of eight lines, and each stanza begins, each line in each stanza begins with a letter of the alphabet. So in the first eight lines, each line begins with Aleph, the first letter. In the second eight lines, each line begins with Beth, the second letter in the alphabet, and so on. An astonishing achievement. You try that. Try it. And see how easy it is. And Why? Because the subject of Psalm 119 is the law of the Lord. His, his teaching, his, his word. And that is perfect and whole and complete. You see how the form says something about the content. So when the book of Proverbs ends with this astonishing poem in this form... It's saying, here is a perfect life. Here is wisdom completed in a human life. Wow. <laughs> really? Some might say, her life is a nightmare. Up in the early hours, not having slept very much, looks after the kids, then a round of ceaseless activity before collapsing into bed, while still having to ensure that she and everybody else, by the way, is dressed up to the nines, and, we assume, ready to give hubby all he wants in bed. And where is hubby, anyway? It seems he's sitting with his mates in the gates, watching while his wife runs herself ragged. 
That's, that's how a lot of people would actually come at that poem, yeah? Well, actually, the gates of a city in ancient Israel were where its leaders met to hear legal cases, to decide how the city was going to be run. So she isn't married to somebody like Dad in the royal family. Do you remember the royal family? you watch that, some of you? The bloke who sits on the sofa all the time watching the TV while the wives run around making tea and meals and doing all the useful stuff. No, it's not like that at all. Actually, he, he, he's, he's got a lot to do too in his own sphere. Actually, he's a trophy husband. Indeed, this woman is an ancient chauvinist's nightmare. Out and about in the community, dealing on her own account with traders, male traders, teaching, managing her household, which would have included male servants. So women in the workplace, if there are any here, as I'm sure there are, trading, creating, managing, teaching, who rightly expect to be treated as equals and paid properly for what they do, as is she, can see in her a role model and a validation Yeah, she does seem to be doing an awful lot for others. But she laughs a lot. Seems it's fun. That blessed relief when you don't just think about yourself all the time. You start thinking about other people. Happens often when people become Christians, doesn't it? They they can shift their focus away from themselves to others. It's a blessed relief, a joy. And, of course, you know, what happened in the Christian Revolution, which, you know, we paper over nowadays and is written out of our history books, in the first four centuries of the era after Christ, when there was a moral revolution in Western culture, which... Its afterglow is still continuing. Even the atheists actually have signed up to our revolution. Even the Dawkins of this world. When actually part of that revolution was the same standards began to be demanded of men as they had been of women. Were women supposed to live for others and find their satisfaction, if they could, in service. That's what the ancient world expected of women. The Christians expected it of men. Were women supposed to be modest, not blow their own trumpets, leave it to others to praise them? So now were men. Were women supposed to be chaste, and keep the marriage bed sacred, while men in the ancient world could play around. That was fine. Now in that area, men too were held to account, just like women were. 
I've got a wee paper rope. They don't talk about this now. They don't want to see the deep roots of this revolution in our culture. But this is the sort of thing that happened. And what's more, you know, if you're thinking that this is all about ceaseless activity, let's remember this is delivered in ancient Israel and takes for granted the rhythms of work and rest that were given in ancient Israel. Above all, the Sabbath. Not just 24 hours, 36 hours in every week where men and women and women and children ceased from all work in home and field and rested. That also was a part of the Christian revolution, which our governments 15 years ago threw away because of the big donations they got from the big retailers. Because, you know, as I said then, there's nothing the kids enjoy more than going shopping with their parents. It's a family time. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) So there were devices in ancient Israel, festivals and blessed times of rest, which fought against workaholism. So this woman who leads life so fully, someone that men as well as women can learn from, is given a title in verse 10. Now, all the English versions don't get it. It, Actually, the one that um, Mackie read from, that's um, NIV, I think, yeah? It's good. The noble woman... My version of the ESV says, excellent. All don't get it, really. It's difficult, actually. The Hebrew is Ishet Chayil. Ishet is woman or wife. Chayil is... It's a word normally applied to soldiers. King David's special forces, his SAS, were called the Anashe Chayil. Anashe men, Chayil, of valor, of boldness, of courage. She is the courageous, the formidable, the feisty, the bold. The brave woman. And as we read about her bold life, sallying out to the marketplace to haggle with the traders, rolling up her sleeves to plant vines and buy property, appearing on the ancient Hebrew version of Bake Off, while teaching her children and servants, and yes, her husband, the ways of wisdom. Who could not be amazed at this formidable, courageous, feisty, excellent, noble, best of women? (coughs) 
Too good to be true? You've not met my wife. Now I say that, but actually that's, in a way that's how it's used in Judaism nowadays, you know, this passage. It's not laid on women as a burden. It's said over them as a, as a blessing. On the Sabbath, the husband in a Jewish household will say this over his wife. At the funeral of a woman, the rabbi will chant this as a blessing over her. Yeah, okay. It's true, there's a bit of doubt, actually, raised even at the beginning of the poem about whether she really could exist. And Ishet Hayil, who can find? Does such a paragon actually exist? And if we did find somebody in real life like this, might it not put us off? (laughs) Might we think we could never be like her? Not even get close? I don't know about you, but when I find people... I was reading the life of George Carey recently. And at one level, it's great. I mean, this is a man who was raised as a cobbler in Northampton, had no formal education, ended learning not only the biblical languages and Latin, but seven Indian languages, four of them good enough to write the standard dictionary in them and translate the scriptures into three of them, who spent his life in India and part of his achievement was to end, in Bengal at least, the cruel practice of sooty where a woman, a widow, would throw herself onto her husband's funeral pyre. At one level it's incredibly impressive, another level it's very depressing when you think how little you've done for the Lord. And so, humanly speaking, we might look at the Ishet Hayil. But if we bring the divine power of the risen Lord Jesus into the picture, the power that is brought into our lives by the Holy Spirit of God, then another way of looking becomes possible. For the Lord Jesus came not that we might be content with third best in life, but that we might have life and have it in abundance. And he showed us, when he lived among us, what that abundant life might look like, friends. How it puts at the center of life the needs of others. And in that service, we find perfect freedom. Whereas if we just live for ourselves, we are trapped in ourselves. He came to serve. 
even if it meant going beyond anything that a leader might normally do, even if it meant giving his life and dying the death of a slave, pouring it out, And as he did so, he revealed that what seemed the waste of a life could be turned by the power of the Father who raised him from the dead into glory and honor and power and blessing for all. If we settle for third best in our lives, Robert Watson Watt. We live in the cult of the imperfect. We are limiting what God can do in us. Sometimes even before we have tried to see what he could do. What God, the Holy Spirit, I believe, what God, the Holy Spirit, yearns to do in us is make us the people that others might look at and say, wow, I would like to be, to live like that. He can do in us far more abundantly than we can ask or think through the power that is at work in us. Lay hold of it, brothers and sisters. As the old hymn teaches, fight the good fight with all thy might. Christ is thy strength. Christ thy right. Lay hold on life and it shall be thy joy and crown eternally. There is a point, oh, such a point, in offering our utmost for his highest. In whatever circumstances we may find ourselves, even perhaps especially in times of weakness and failure. Then above all, do we need to live abundantly, do the best that we can. Some of you may remember a long time ago, before you lost the will to live, um, I, I mentioned uh, Michael Jackson. Oh, no, not him. No, not Michael Jackson. That's somebody else. Michael Johnson. The sprinter. He's now almost fully recovered. Thank God. He does, because he's a believing man. He spoke in that interview of the despair he felt when he realized how disabled he had become. And how hope 
flooded back when he was told that recovery was possible and how he determined to recover, to work so hard to be the very best recoverer he could be, better than anybody had been before. And he also said it was not the moments of triumph that helped him as the two months of recovery went along. But not the moments of triumph in his athletic career, it was the times of failure and injury and difficulty when he'd had to dig and find the resources that were given him to overcome. That's what helped. I'm not sure if he was the fastest ever to recover from a stroke. (laughs) But was there a point in him aiming to be the best that he could be in those circumstances? Yes, of course. And so there is for us. We are not alone. We have the examples of those who've gone before us, the power of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at life, alive in us. Let us lay hold of these things, brothers and sisters, and give our utmost for His highest.